Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. It is Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled. At him. This is the word of the Lord. The late R.C. Sproul, I know I quote him a lot, but (laughs) the late R.C. Sproul once wrote that Caesar has things that belong to him does not mean that he has a right to everything that he claims for himself. Believers give to God the things that are God's. And what belongs to him is supreme authority, even over the state. Thus, the state is not permitted to overstep its bounds and intrude in matters such as worship and church discipline that God has not delegated to the state. So this morning, I just I have to tell you, as I've been working on this message and you know reading commentaries and, and really just kind of like putting the pieces together, I have been astounded by God's sovereignty. And I realize if there's something that you're going to hear me talk about a lot, it's going to be the, the sovereignty of God. Right? It's, I think it's one of the most important things that we can talk about. I think it's one of the most important things that we can remind ourselves. I think it's the reason why we can have hope in dark times is because we believe that God can fulfill his promises because he is sovereign. Right? But, but today, <clears throat> for me, when, when I look at this text, God's sovereignty is on full display. When you see... God's work at, at hand, when it's visible around you, right? It's sometimes kind of shocking and almost astounding. I mean, you know that it's the truth, but to witness it is, is awesome, right? And, and, and for me, it's all over this text. In fact, look at the text. This text right here, right? If you actually understand the parts and pieces of what's happening here, you will realize that this text is very, very relevant today. You might not realize it, right? But this text has a lot to say about where we are today in the way that we're doing things today as a church, as individuals, and even as a culture. Not to mention, on the surface, this text is about paying taxes, right? Is it right? Is it lawful for Christians to pay taxes to Caesar or the the government Is is the question that this text addresses on the surface. And what you need to realize is that in any other year, The timing of this conversation would not be anything. It would not be an odd issue, right? 
It would just be something that we would just read in the text and we would just address it as we went along. But I want you to think about this. We have been working through Mark one section at a time, and it is now the time that we happen to be in the middle of July addressing this particular issue. It's just kind of how it's worked itself out. I didn't plan for it to happen this way. This is how it's worked itself out. But then there's the fact that the world has changed around us, and it has changed around us in radical ways. It has changed so much that that even the tax filing deadline has been extended by the U.S. government from April 15th to the middle of July, July 15th, which was just this last week. By just a show of hands, how many of you actually filed your taxes before April 15th? Oh, wow, a lot of you. Very responsible. How many of you waited till after the April 15th to file your taxes? All right. How many of you waited till like July 15th to file your taxes? Okay, all right. All right. So I want you to understand the coincidence of, of this timing of, of how this has worked itself out is uncanny, especially since you consider, first of all, that the tax filing deadline has been something for most Americans has been set in stone in the middle of April since 1955, right? 1955 is when the tax deadline was April 15th, and it has been that way for 65 years. For 65 years, this has been the pattern, right? It, it seemed that April 15th would always be forever known as tax day, right? That it was set in stone. People you know, say that there's only two things that are sure in life, death and what? Taxes, right? And the government, right, seems to, to have, have very little patience for people who do not file their taxes on time. If you haven't done it, you know the wrath of the government. April 15th has been the deadline for 65 years, but, but that changed this year. The U.S. government... <laughs> You have to think about what has had to transpire to make this happen. The U.S. government, because of, because of all that's happened, has given its citizens until July the 15th to file taxes. That is unheard of. That is that's astounding. Right? I mean, you want evidence that 2020 has been a crazy year? That right there is more than enough for you to realize that something weird happened this, this year. Right? This is, as they say, unprecedented. But that's only part of the coincidence, though. Because I started, because, because the other part of this coincidence is I started this series of Mark on October 14th, 2018. And this right here is the 62nd part of this series, you know, titled Following Jesus. And when I started this series, I knew that we were going to go through Mark, you know, because we're really going to focus on discipleship as a church, because, because that's the point of this series. And I believe the point of, of Mark's gospel Right? And it's also the point of the Christian life, to become more and more like Jesus, to follow him. And I knew that it was going to take time to really dig into the text and really you know, understand it so that you can grow. And, and we're not, we, we made a decision. We're not going to rush through the book. Right? We're going to look at each section in its own, you know, in context, in an effort to proclaim the gospel, to help you as believers and me as a believer to grow in our understanding of God, and to help believers to take action based on what they're, what they're learning, to join the mission of Christ. I wanted, to, wanted us to learn to actively, with our lives, follow Jesus. But I had no idea exactly how long this was going to take. I just knew that when we started this, as I told you, didn't want to be like John Piper and take eight years to get through it. I mean, it took John Piper eight years to get through the book of Romans on Sunday morning. I don't know about you, but that's a long time. Right? And yes, there have been times that I have tried to actually go to a calendar and pencil out, you know, 
the, the sections at certain points, but that changes really, really quickly. I mean, at one time I had Adam Young come here and preach, and that put my schedule off a week. All right? And then I had guest speakers come, like David Larson, when I was sick, that puts the schedule off again. And then there was times, like recently, where there was so much to go over in a particular text that I thought it was going to take one week. It took two and sometimes even three. Right? And then, more to the right, and then we had COVID 19, which then took eight weeks out of the schedule. Right? Because we took eight weeks to, to cover you know, two important topics, which is trusting God when it doesn't make sense and waiting on God when, 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 when everything is crazy, right? Things that we didn't plan for. So the fact, right, so the, fact the matter is, right, we are right here, right now in the text, talking about taxes in this part of Mark, when suddenly the government this year changes the deadline by three months is not something that I could have predicted. It's not something I could have, I mean, rea- really, like none of us could have predicted hardly any of this stuff, right? So it's not something I could have planned for. And so not only is this uncanny, I want you to know this is, this is supernatural, right? That this has God's fingerprints all over it, not to mention, right, since we have come back to this series, there's been an overarching theme, I hope you can see, to what we've been talking about. Since we have come back, there is an overarching theme that spanned every sermon to this point, and that is authority, right? We've been talking about the authority of Christ, who is our ultimate authority. That's, that's been one of the issues, by the way, that we all have been dealing with in our world around us. Since COVID-19 happens, there's a lot of people you know, who are trying to exert authority over our lives, since we come back for corporate worship, there's been, there's been other people and institutions and our, even our government trying to exert its authority over us. We've been dealing with the question, who has supreme authority in our lives? Is it man or is it, is it God? Because right now the government seems to think that it has supreme authority. I don't know if you realize that, right? The government seems to think that it has authority over this part of your life right here. Our state seems to be overstepping its authority in, in many of the areas of our lives, especially when it comes to worship. The state of California seems to think that it can dictate how we worship and when we worship and where we worship. And this right here is an issue that, we, that has been impacting us for several weeks. And during this time, when we came back to Mark and this text, right, the next thing that, we, that, that, was, that was in line, the next text that was up for us to, to look at, was when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey declaring what? <laughs> that he's the king. That he's the Messiah. He is the one who has the authority. But Jesus is not only, Jesus is our supreme authority, but, but, but that's not all. Right, that's, that was the first Thing that we addressed. The second one was the very, when he, where Jesus displays his authority and he pronounces judgment on Israel for their unfruitfulness. Remember the fig tree. And we saw not only his authority, but his coming wrath for those who don't obey his authority. And then Jesus physically exerts his authority by clearing out the temple. He drove out people and flipped over tables and prevented people from actually carrying things through the temple. And then, and then, and then what followed is the Sanhedrin. The religious leaders of Israel coming to Jesus, confronting him, demanding that he submit to their authority. But then Jesus makes it clear that they have no authority over him at all. And then he tells them a parable about the tenant farmers, which then 
is a pronouncement of judgment against them for their unfaithfulness and unfruitfulness, and he foretells of the time when they will be completely stripped of all of their authority. And now, in the midst of everything that's going on in this text, and what's happening in our lives, Jesus is going to deal with the question then of Caesar's authority, the government's authority. What happens when those two authorities conflict? And, that, and, and that's what we'll find today in this text. Right? And we'll find that even though it was written 2,000 years ago, right, for an audience in the first century, this text really has a great deal to teach us about how we live today in this very moment of our lives of competing authorities. And I believe that with all my heart that we are right here, right now, talking about the things that we're talking about Because this is what God has ordained for all of us to deal with and address and think about. There's something that God wants all of us to hear in this text. And so with that, turn with me to Mark chapter 12 and let's see how that works itself out. Mark chapter 12, and we're going to begin looking at verse 13. This is just a few short verses, but I'm telling you, I had to cut out about 40% of the things I want to talk about in this text. There's so much here. All right. So Mark chapter 12, beginning verse 13, and it says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, the first question I think you have to ask that you have to get clear on is, who's they? It says they, right? They sent to Jesus some people to confront him. They did it. Who were they? Well, in the context, and this is why context is so important, it's the Sanhedrin. It's the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, the leaders of Israel. The ones who were just in the conflict with Jesus just a little while ago. The ones who, were, who had questioned his authority. The ones Jesus had put in their place and pronounced judgment upon. The ones who wanted to arrest him, but they didn't because of public opinion. They were scared of the people. They are the ones who sent these men to Jesus. Right? And what you need to realize is that this is not a different day. This is the same day. And what you'll find out is that there's a lot of stuff over the next several sections of text that all happen on this day. It's a very long day of of basically people confronting and questioning Jesus' authority. Right? And so that's what's going on in the text. So so in essence, this is a continuation of that confrontation. These guys were were, were put in their place by Jesus, the Sanhedrin, but they... But they wouldn't want to let it go, right? They didn't want to let it go like, like so many other people. Kind of reminds us, you know, I don't know about you, like when I was a kid, there was always these schoolyard conflicts. You know, you had this confrontation. Sometimes it was verbal, sometimes it got physical, right? And then what happens is when some kid bested another, what happens? They wouldn't got their friends or their, you know, big brother or something like that. They didn't want to let it go. They didn't just want to just, just say, okay, I've, I've lost. The Sanhedrin lost his confrontation, right, with Jesus, and they weren't going to let it go. And so they sent these guys to, to you know, continue on this confrontation. And I want you to notice that the purpose of why they sent these men. It says they sent them to trap him in his talk or to trap him in his words. Now, why would they do that? What, what's the point of that? Well, the point of it is because they want to, to arrest him. Right? He has challenged, not only challenged their authority, but he has denied their authority and pronounced judgment upon them. They're a threat. He's a threat to them. And because of that, he's a threat to them. 
they want to get rid of him. They want to have him arrested and dealt with. But there's one problem. The problem is that they are afraid to arrest him because they are afraid not of him, but of the people who are for him. See, Jesus in this moment is very popular. He's done incredible miracles. He's healed people. He's cast out demons. He's brought people back to life. And he has given hope to those who have no hope. And he now just has just ridden in on a, on a donkey, proclaiming to be king, and people believed that he was the coming Messiah. That was the anticipation. I mean, if you remember, the city was electric. They were shouting, Hosanna. And, and, and if the Sanhedrin were to have him arrested in that moment, it was politically scary for them, right? Because they're risking credibility with, with, with the public at best, but they're also risking the crowd turning on them at worst. It's, it's all politics, It's all politics, just like today. It's so funny how, you know, politicians make promises and suddenly it changes. And then the weather and the wind blows this way and suddenly they're going that direction. So they can't arrest him in the moment unless Jesus does something or says something that causes the public opinion to change about him. Does that sound familiar? He was popular unless he did something or said something that caused his popularity to diminish. Otherwise, they couldn't touch him. That's why they sent these men to trap him in his words. They went out publicly to question Jesus in an effort to get him to say something that would get him into trouble, in essence. That would get him to say something that would cause people's thoughts and opinions of him to change. Which really is something I think we understand in the context that we have today. I mean, we see this all the time in our culture. Like in, in, how about like just say courtrooms. During cross-examination, lawyers, it's their job. They get paid a lot of money to challenge people and ask them difficult questions and to get them tripped up on their own words and make them look stupid and to discredit them, right? And turn the jury against them, right? It's also the same with reporters, you would think that reporting was supposed to be about getting the facts. Reporters don't get, look to get facts. They look to write big stories, right? And they, and they do the same to politicians and celebrities, and they'll ask the most controversial questions possible that if they answer it the wrong way, they could destroy a person's career. Right? And we especially have at a time right now where everybody's words are especially dangerous because either they're all recorded on video or written down on social media. And the worst part is that stuff lasts forever. And so a person who's popular today can be hated by the crowd tomorrow simply by saying something that's unpopular, saying the wrong thing, identifying with the wrong group, you know, identifying with the wrong cause. Like, let's just say Drew Brees. I don't know if you realize, but Drew Brees is actually one of the nicest people in all the NFL. Super humble, hardworking, nice guy, you know? I mean, if you had like, if you, you know, if you had somebody that would marry your daughter, you'd think it'd be something like him, like just a, a, just an honorable man. He not only is a great athlete, you know, a great quarterback and a Super Bowl champion, but he's gracious and he's generous. And he has donated millions, millions of dollars to the impoverished people in, in, in the city of New Orleans and in his community. In fact, he's lived in he didn't live in like the, the richest suburbs. He lived more closely to the inner city because he wanted to be seen as part of them. Right? 
He's a professing Christian that never has anything negative to say about anybody. Just a super nice guy. But then last year, he agreed to speak publicly about an initiative, right, for kids to bring to, to school their Bibles. Not a big deal, except for that initiative was sponsored by Focus on the Family. And Focus on the Family has been labeled by some groups as an anti-LGBT group because of why? Their stance on biblical, traditional marriage. They believe what the Bible teaches about marriage, and so that makes them hateful. And because of that, the, his public association with them right, caused a number of pro-LGBT groups to go after him publicly. And the public pressure began to mount, and the pressure worked. Because he then had to distance himself from focus on the family. You talk about an innocuous group, right? He had to distance himself from focus on the family. And then he had to soft pedal kind of his stance on, on traditional marriage. He really had to kind of like get really political in how he answered that question. Right? And if that wasn't bad enough, then this year someone asked him, hey, what's your stance on people kneeling for the national anthem? And he said what most of us, I think, would say, that it's disrespectful, and I'll never agree with it. That's what he said. But in light of the death of George Floyd, somehow those things got connected, and then the social justice mob goes after him, and everybody, all these professional athletes and all these groups come after him, and he then finds himself having to apologize for the words that he had to say and says that they were insensitive. Drew Brees was a popular man, a man who does a lot of good, right? But somehow he became despised by many of the people, right, that had supported him simply because of what he said, simply by expressing his opinion, right? An opinion that's really shared by millions of people, by the way. But the woke mob turned on him and turned against him. And again, what we see is, is we see this all the time. People get fired. People get fired for the things that they say publicly, talking about their political opinions. Simply expressing their opinion can get somebody fired or canceled. People get fired for liking the wrong social media posts, supporting the wrong political candidates. There's a, in fact, there's a pastor in Birmingham, Alabama. I don't want to belabor this point, but I, want to, I think this is important for us to see. There's a pastor in Birmingham, Alabama who operates a huge church, and they've chosen to lease this high school for Sunday services, and they pay $12,000 a month to the school. It's a lot of money, right? It's a pretty good-sized church. And they do a lot of work in the, in, the, in the city, feeding people and clothing people. In fact, they, they actually do more than anybody else in any other organization for the people that community. They love these people. They're rooted and they're grounded in this, right? This church has benefited the public, even people that don't go to the church. But then he, his lease was terminated by the school district simply because... He liked a few comments by some conservatives, and someone saw that he liked it, and then they then took that, because they were offended by that, and reported it to the school district, and we can't have the appearances of somebody who doesn't think like us. And so they've, now, the people that, that he was serving, the people that he was loving, the people that, that he was helping, then turned on him and kicked him out. It happens all the time. Because public opinion is fickle, right? And it can change in an instant. And it's always been like that, by the way. Well, you know, the, the, when we, we look at the text, we find out that the, that the Bible is true. Nothing is new under the sun. 
And these men knew that. These men who wanted to talk to him knew that. They were trying to trap him. They were trying to, to change public opinion about him. They were trying to get him to say something that would, that would get him in trouble and so they can arrest him. Now, the second thing to notice is that these people that, that they sent to challenge him. This is an interesting group of people. This, it says that they're Pharisees and Herodians, right? And this is significant to us for two important reasons. Number one, this group has already had a run-in with Jesus, right? Jesus has already, like, bumped into them, and they've already wanting, they were, they were already all in for him to be arrested. They were, they were good with that because they had made contact with him before and wanted him dead. In fact, Mark chapter 3, I'll just remind you kind of how that went. And says, he, again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether, they, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. They are already, this is like almost three years ago, they're already looking for ways to, to, to find a way to, like, to get this guy in trouble, right? And, and he said to the man with a withered hand, come here, and he said to them, it is, is, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to them, stretch out your, stretch, I mean, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This group of people, these two groups of people have already made up their mind to have Jesus killed. They had made their decision years ago. Right? And so now they see their opportunity to come and try to get him tripped up and make good on that opportunity. Now, the second thing you need to notice is that the Pharisees and Herodians, as we might have talked about before, but let me remind you, they're political enemies. These groups of people are not friends. These, they, they don't like each other. They have completely different interests. See, the Herodians are in support of Herod, the ruler of Galilee, under the authority of Romans. So, so politically speaking, they were pro-Roman. Right? They, were, they were okay with, 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 with the Roman government. They were okay with how it was set up because they benefited from it. Right? They were empowered in their position by it. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, right, at least publicly hated Roman rule. Why? Number one, they despised Herod because Herod was a heathen. He was everything that they weren't, right? He was a disgrace to the Jewish people because he claimed to be Jewish. And then they despised the Roman rules for ruling over Judah. They thought that they should be leading the nation, not just religiously, but politically. It was supposed to be a theocracy. That's how God had designed it. And they despised the Romans for their idolatry. The Romans were an idolatrous people. It was everywhere. And they hated it. So these two groups of men were opposed to one another. They were not friends. But here they are, they come together united against Christ. Why? Because he was the common enemy. Jesus was a threat to the Pharisees and their religious leadership, and he was a threat to the Herodians and their political leadership. Both of these groups felt that their authority was now in jeopardy. You see, it's always about authority. At least without Jesus... Right? In this, if Jesus wasn't in the picture, they could at least coexist in the world that they lived in because they had their own spheres of influence. Sometimes they bumped into each other, but for the most part, they were able to kind of live separate lives. But because Jesus was here, everything was changing. And, and, and he's the most popular person in Judea at this point. And now he seems, you know, now he comes riding in on the donkey 
confirming what everybody was believing about him, that he is the Messiah, claiming to be the king, and now the crowd is shouting Hosanna, he is an absolute threat to all people who were in power at the time. To say politics makes strange bedfellows is an understatement. Right? It's something we see even now, but again, this goes back 2,000 years. And again, it's something we continue to see today. I mean, right now, you want to talk about strange bedfellows. Under Marxist influence of certain groups, there are people who, who really have little in common, groups that have very little in common, and even have competing agendas who are uniting against a common enemy. And that common enemy is the Western culture in America. That's the common enemy. We are witnessing right before our eyes the destruction of our very culture. That includes marriage. That includes the family. That includes the educational system. That includes our governmental system and even the church itself. Our Western, heterosexual, family-oriented, hard-working, Bible-believing culture that has produced, by the way, the greatest nation that the world has ever seen, which also has produced more free people around the world than any other history, any other nation in the history of mankind, is the enemy of a growing number of groups of people, like the mainstream media, like Hollywood and the LGBT community, and third-wave feminists, and Black Lives Matter, and secular universities, and a growing number of politicians, and even now state and local governments are getting on board. These cities could put an end to the violence and the riots now if they chose to do so. They're not in favor of that. The rush towards secularization removing God, and the rush towards socialization away from faith, family, and a free market democracy at this moment is stunningly breathtaking. I'd like to say that it's, un, you know, and, and, and like I said, unli it, unlikely groups, groups that are opposed to each other philosophically are uniting together. Like, for instance, the, the, the feminist movement and transgender movement, if there are two movements that do not coexist in the same universe, it's those two, right? Because feminism is to promote women, right? And, and to help to establish them and, and give them places of strength and, and, and to say to the world, see, we're, they're just as strong and equal to men in every possible conceivable way. And what, is the, what does the transgender movement say? The best women are men who become women. These are diametrically opposed philosophies, and at some point they will consume each other, but at the moment they are banding together. Why? Because they have a common enemy. You see, the problem is is this conflict that's being played out, right? It's being played out because there's a decided uniting around the worst enemy that they see. Right? But for all the differences, they are united. And that's exactly what we see here. <laughs> right? Groups of people who wouldn't really normally agree, like the, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, like on things like the resurrection, right? the Pharisees and the Herodians, these groups of people who have very little in common are now standing together, united in their hatred for Christ. And then in verse 14 it says, And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, 
but truly teach the way of God. Now, what you need to see here is, right, they didn't come to Jesus this time with daggers and insults. They didn't come with pretense. They didn't come with threats. They didn't come trying to exert their authority. They came with flattery. Notice that they called him teacher. It's a position of respect. And they, and, and they said to him, we know that you don't care what people think. Right? You're not swayed by public opinion. We know that you speak the truth. These are flattering words. And there's a reason for this. See, the Sanhedrin came to Jesus, right? And they approached him like he was a nobody. What do they do? They put on their best clothes. They come to him and they're trying to bully him like he didn't belong there. They're like, who do you think you are? What authority do you think you have to do what you're doing? Which obviously didn't work. Jesus was able to, to, to turn the table on them and put them in their place. And so these men now come with a more subtle tactic. They're using flattery. They compliment him. But what I want you to notice is even though what they're saying about him is, is, is flattery, and even though that it's not sincere, what they're saying about him is absolutely the truth. It is absolutely true, the things that they're saying about him. Jesus does speak the truth of God. And he does so regardless of whether or not it's popular. He does so whether or not people agree with him. He doesn't care what people think. He speaks the truth regardless of what the crowd wants. He speaks the truth and is not concerned about the opinions of men. He is concerned about the truth. Now, if there is something that's missing at this moment in our country's leadership and every conceivable letter, um, level, it's this character that we see in Christ right here. Amen? There's a reason why they call it the silent majority. Because they're all silent. You see, the problem is most people want to be liked. And if you can't say amen to that, then you ought to say ouch, as Vody Bauckham says. Most people want to be well thought of. Most people just want to get along. Most people just don't want to be in, in a confrontation. Most people don't want others to say mean things to them or about them. Which is why a minority of hateful people made up of all different ethnicities and differing philosophies are creating so much havoc in America right now. That's why Antifa and the group Black Lives Matter, which is a Marxist organization, they have so much influence. Look, what, look what's happening in the cities again. These are not protests. You saw what happened in Chicago. They were assaulting the police officer who was just simply just trying to protect the statue of Columbus. Right? What's happening in Portland, Oregon? These are not peaceful protests. They're riots and violent insurrections. In fact, one lady in Portland was quoted as saying, we, we want nothing short than the overthrow of the United States of America as we know it today. Look at what's happening in these cities. Right? And people are afraid to speak up. I mean, most everybody disagrees with this. Most everybody hates this. But they don't want to speak up because they don't want the crowd to turn on them. Because it feels like everybody they know supports it. But I want you to understand that is not even close to the truth. See, most people believe that the majority, that it takes a majority to change the culture. 
So most people believe. They think it like, takes 51% of the people to make these kind of radical changes. But it's not even close to true. It's actually 11%. All it takes is about 11% of the population becoming vocal and visible and becoming enough of a political force and enough of a bully to basically force everyone else who's silent in sub submission. Now, why is that possible? Because we care about what people think. We care about public opinion. We, we care about how other, other people perceive us. So much of, so much of, so much that we won't stand up for the truth. Tell me I'm wrong. We see it right down the politicians. Nobody, very few politicians have the courage to stand up and call things the way that they are. We see it in businesses right now. Why? Because they're afraid of the backlash and, and, and the boycotts. I mean, there's enough muscle now that, that they can bankrupt people and get people fired. And this is, and I want you to understand, this is not just a public at large thing. This is not an out there problem. It's not just the world. It is also infecting the church. That's why the church is theologically anemic. Because everybody in the church just wants to be liked. Pastors are like, I just, I just want to be encouraging. Me too, right? I just want to tell people what I'm for and not what I'm against. I don't, I, I don't want people to see. I don't want people to see me as an enemy. I want people to see me as their friend, right? I, I want to tell people. I don't want to tell them what's wrong with them. I just want to tell them what's right with them. Many pastors are afraid to stand up and actually tell the truth. That's why they don't talk about sin. That's why pastors don't talk about the wrath of God. You talk about something that people hate to talk about is the wrath of God. They don't like it. They hate it. That's why so many people in so many churches affirm lifestyles that are biblically not only destructive to families and societies, but they actually consign those people who embrace them to hell. Talk about another subject nobody wants to talk about. Right? Pastors don't like it when people tell them, man, you are just too tough. You just need to be softer. You just need to be more encouraging. You just need to lighten up. You're just so narrow-minded. Pastors want to be accepted like everyone else. Pastors are, are prone to the same temptations as everyone else. And, but Paul warns us about that. He warned Timothy, a young pastor who was timid and afraid himself. He said... There are times, for the time is coming, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers that suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 2 Timothy 3, verse, verse, verses, I mean, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. So many ministers are falling prey to the pressure of the crowd and, and the culture. And... and and what is worse is that churches right now, churches right now have lost their theological foundation of inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture, right? who are using man-made worldviews and philosophies like critical race theory and liberation theology, who are saying to the world that repentance and forgiveness is not enough to heal the divide in our culture. It's good enough for God, but it ain't good enough for people. That unity in Christ is not enough. That there must be something more than that. There are churches that are teaching that unity is not the answer. There are churches 
There are churches that are preaching racial segregation is the answer. And they're not white churches that are preaching this. You talk about something that's just something has changed radically in our culture for that to happen. And these are churches that were once conservative in their doctrine. They're adopting unbiblical and even heretical attitudes when it comes to this concept of social justice. The gospel is right out the window. The gospel is not the answer for them. And people are jumping on the bandwagon in droves. Why? Because it's popular. So where the world's going And many pastors and elders and members of churches are just going along with the trend because because of the cultural pressure, because they they fear being called things like bigot or racist or Uncle Tom or, or intolerant. They fear being rejected. They fear being hated. They fear of people thinking negatively of them. Most people don't want to be on the wrong side of public opinion. And and the cost of standing for the truth is growing. Again, there's, another, there's a pastor in Northern California I've talked about, but it's, I think it's a good reminder. He decided to put a message on the sign out front of his church. This is a conservative Presbyterian church proclaiming the truth about Christ and, meth, and, and marriage and sexual identity. And the public pressure and the media attention was so great that it led the congregation to fire the pastor. He was fired not for teaching false doctrines. He was fired not for being disqualified from the ministry for moral failures. He was fired for daring to express publicly what the Bible clearly teaches and what the majority of the congregants actually believed. But they didn't have the courage to stand beside him and stand up for him. Which is unfortunate because as as Christians, we're supposed to be like Christ. We are supposed to be like Christ, which is different than the rest of the world. Now, when, when, when people think of being like being, being Christians, right, I, they think in terms of, okay, being like Christ means being nice and, and tender and loving and patient and long-suffering and forgiving, which those are our things that, that are attributes of Christ that we should emulate for sure. Those are good things. They are true of Christ. But they forget also the other side of Christ that we are also called to emulate. There are times to be forceful. There are times to be direct. Jesus was those things, right? Just think about what happened in the temple, right? Jesus was uncompromising about the truth. There was no compromise. And he spoke the truth regardless of what other people had to say. He was not moved by public opinion. In, in fact, if you remember, public opinion is going to change on him. The same people that were were shouting for joy that he came here are going to be calling for him to be crucified. But he never changes. He stands on the truth, even though they're going to torture him in the worst possible way, and they're going to crucify him for it. Brothers and sisters, what our families need, what our community needs, what our country needs is for those who follow Christ is to be like him in every way, not just the ones that make us feel good. We need to be lovingly but firmly declaring the truth. And we need to stop caring about what culture thinks. Culture is not our friend. We love the people in the culture. We want to redeem the culture. But we cannot be moved by it. And we cannot be moved by public opinion. 
Because that's exactly who Jesus was. And so these men try to use flattery to butter Jesus up and, and take down his guard so they could ask him, you know, a loaded question. And when I say loaded question, I mean this was a really loaded question. This is what's called a dilemma, right? A real dilemma. You see, a dilemma is a question that when somebody asks you, that really, whatever, however you answer it, is really going to get you in trouble, right? A dilemma is a, is a, is a rhetorical device used in, in argumentation. That's, they call it a dilemma, they, they call it like the horns of the dilemma, because it's like somebody just sends a charging bull at you who has two horns, and if you, you move to avoid one horn, you get impaled by the other. It's like, no matter which direction you go, you know, you're in trouble. It's like, be, it's like being between a, a rock and a hard place or the devil in the deep blue sea. It's kind of the same concept, right? right? It's, like, it's like the lawyer who, who asks the witness, right, have you stopped beating your wife? Right? It's like, okay, how do I answer that question? Yes or no? Answer the question. Well, if you say, yes, I stopped beating my wife, means that you used to beat your wife, but you stopped, which means you're still a jerk, right? But if you say no, right, then, then you're really in trouble because you are still beating your wife. It's an unfair question. It's, it's, it's like no matter how you answer the question, this is what the kind of question that they're asking here. They're asking him a loaded question. No matter how he answers his question, yes or no, right, he would be in trouble. They think that they've trapped him. They think that they've gotten him. Right? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now this might seem... For us, here 2,000 years later, is a simple question you know, with a yes or no answer. But this question is one of actually the most controversial questions that, that anyone could ask at the time. Right? Because there was no way for him to say yes or no without it leading to some sort of trouble. You see, the idea of Roman taxation was a hot-button issue in Judea, and it had been for all of Christ's life. I don't know if you realize this. Here's the, let, me, let me blow your mind a little bit here. 6 A.D., the Roman government took over governmental control, direct governmental control of Judea, right, by putting in place a prefect or a governor. That's what Pontius Pilate is, right? And, and, and one of the first things that Rome did at that time was to do what? To take a census of Judea for the purpose of taxation. Well, what else happened result of that census? Mary and Joseph had to leave their home and go to Bethlehem, their ancestral home, to be registered for that census, to be counted for taxation purposes. Right? And while, while they, were, they were there, what happened? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. You can't see God's sovereignty? All right. All right. Now, what you need to also understand is that every, not everyone would comply with this order from Rome. In fact, there was a group of people who just rebelled against it. Judas, the Galilean, led an insurrection against the Roman Empire because he refused to be counted and refused to be taxed. And, and not only that, they chastised their own people, Jewish people, for, not, for complying and just wanting to get along. Right? And they would even go so far as to destroy people's livestock and their possessions because they felt it was treachery to... to to, to be counted, and to also pay the tax. And so they, they used violence against their own people because they were diametrically opposed to the Roman rule and taxation. But if you remember, Rome quickly puts this insurrection down, and they did so violently. 
And Judas and his followers were not taken somewhere and crucified. If you'll also remember this part of the story that connects to Jesus, is that they were at the Sea of Galilee, and what do they do? They took these men, and they tied great millstones around their necks and pushed them off into the middle of the lake. Right? Which, by the way, is a gruesome, horrible way to die. And so much so that Jesus used the analogy, if you remember, talking about causing children to sin. He's referring to that insurrection when he talks about this. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The people that Jesus were talking to then knew exactly what he was referring to. Everyone in the area realized that fighting back against Romans' rule and, and, and taxation came at a huge price. Rome used violence and intimidation to force compliance. And guess what? That didn't make the Jews happy. It made them more resentful over the years. Now here's the thing you need to understand, is the Herodians, when, when they're asking this question, they didn't have a problem with the taxation. Because really they weren't quite as affected by it. They were in favor of this because it benefited them. It benefited them to be Rome's handmaiden. And the Pharisees technically were against paying the tax, and they would push back, but not very hard, right? Because the system still allowed them a place to have authority. See, there was still a place in the system for them. And they were not the ones that were economically impoverished. But for the common Jew who, who was desperately poor and impressed, most of them right, hated the tax, and they hated Roman rule because it really cost them big. And to make things even more complicated is there are influential groups of people among the Jews, known as the Zealots, who were staunchly opposed to Roman rule and, and staunchly opposed to paying taxes, right? and they continue to fight against it. And at times they were doing so covertly, but they also at times were open about their rebellion. And this led to them influencing the Jewish people to, to get into a fight with, with the Romans in 66 AD. And we know how that ended, right? The destruction of Rome happened because of that. Now, the reason why this is important is because this question that they're asking Jesus potentially could get him in jeopardy with either the zealots, the Jewish people, or the Roman Empire. Because Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes, the zealots are going to say, see, he's just another politician, consenting to Roman oppression, right? And then they would then turn the crowd against him, putting Jesus in danger of mob justice. Again, a repeated theme in our own time. But if Jesus says, no, it's not lawful according to Jewish law to pay taxes, then what they would do is turn him into the authorities saying, hey, this guy's starting an insurrection against Rome and Caesar. And believe me, if there's something that, that, that the Romans took very seriously were public threats and to, you know, to, their, to their political authority. And so in essence, what they were asking was the question, by this question was, they were basically just trying to create a controversy by which Jesus' words Right, in his public opinion, would change, would cause public opinion to change, so they would either have the ability to arrest him without the fear of the public, or the Romans would come in and do it for them. How convenient. But Jesus knows. He knows their game, and he's prepared for it. Verse 15 it says, But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? You see, Jesus knows exactly what they're up to. And he's, not, and he's not fooled, right? He knows exactly what it is they're seeking to accomplish by this. And he refuses to play their game and, and fall into the trap. Instead, he says, bring me a denarius that I may look at it. Now, 
a denarius is a silver Roman coin that was worth about a day's wages. Right? With inflation, I don't know how that would work out. I mean, but the reality is it's one silver coin that represent, you know, you paid that to somebody for a day's worth of work. That was the tax. Right? That was the standard currency in the Roman Empire. And Jesus asked to see one. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Now this verse right here is really important for us to unpack because you can read over this, but there's a lot of little details that we really have to get our heads wrapped around. He asks them to produce this Roman coin. He, He looks at it and he shows it to them. And he asks them, Whose image is on this coin? I think you can see that up there, right? right? And they said, Caesar's. Which is correct. It's Caesar's image. And most likely, it is Tiberius Caesar, which is on one side of the coin. And the inscription around the image is, says, from Latin into English, says, the divine son of, of Augustus. Right? Or in other words, that Caesar is the son of God, the god Augustus Caesar. This right here was blasphemy to the Jewish people, obviously. Because the Roman emperors were being venerated as gods, right? But then on the other side of the coin was another offensive image, an image of Caesar's mother. And the inscription read, high priest. Which was also offensive to Jewish people because the idea of a woman being a high priest was heresy to them. The law of God prohibited women from being high priests. These These coins were idolatrous in every possible way to them. By the way, that's why they have money changers. Now you kind of know why that exists. Because they're not going to allow people to take that coin and put it into the temple treasury. right? They're not going to let that go into the building because it's idolatrous. That's why they would exchange the currency. But here's the part of the hypocrisy, at least for for the Pharisees we need to see. When Jesus asked them to bring him a coin that it was used to pay this tax to Caesar, they didn't have to go looking for it. They had one on them. And for, for all their self-righteousness and all of their rule-keeping and all this pretense of all their religiosity of look at me, look how pious I am, they didn't have a problem carrying around with them graven images of a false god in their pocket on a coin. And there they were standing in that moment. Where? On the temple mount itself. God's God's house. Not to mention Jewish people and the Sanhedrin had been profiting from exchanging these coins right there on the temple mount. They had been bringing these idolatrous coins to God's temple mount by the thousands. So this question about Roman taxation is not even a real question. The Pharisees who taught the law obviously didn't have a problem accepting Rome's claim to rule and their right to tax them because they were participating and profiting from Rome's system of economics. You see, the thing to realize is, is is that these are politicians. They're political insiders. And political insiders always have an interest in protecting the political system because it benefits them even when they pretend like they're opposed to it. Politicians are politicians. But here's the brilliant part of all this. Jesus draws their attention and says, whose image is on the coin? Right? 
And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This, they marveled at him is really a big, gigantic understatement. They were astonished, right? They were shocked. Like, his answer was not even like, like, it wasn't even coming from the same universe. They were not even close to expecting this. I mean, you could have knocked them down with a feather. Notice that they marveled. They were completely taken by surprise because this was a brilliant answer. Jesus avoided the trap altogether. Jesus avoided being made a mockery in front of people, and he avoided becoming the enemy of the states by this brilliant answer. But this answer is brilliant for a much more important reason because it settles for us the dispute between Caesar's authority and God's authority. This settles the dispute between the government's authority and God's authority. Because notice how this works. Jesus affirmed that Caesar right, and the government of Rome had a rightful claim. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, he said. The government has a rightful claim. Let's just be clear about this. Okay? The government has authority. It has God-given authority over our lives. And it has the right to impose taxes. And we are obligated to pay them. Jesus says Caesar has a rightful claim, right? But Jesus also says, but so does God. Jesus said to them, they are to give each what is rightfully due to them because they both have a rightful claim. The government has a rightful claim and God has a rightful claim upon them and us. That's indisputable, right? But, but as the theologian once put it, so long as God's right, rights are safeguarded, there is no need to even question the rights of Caesar. As long as the government, <clears throat> as long as the government's claims don't conflict with God's claim upon us, then we are to submit to the government. I want you to hear me on this. I'm saying it out loud. If the government's claims do not, whether we like them or not, if they do not interfere or conflict with God's claims upon us, then we are to submit to the government. As long as the government's laws do not conflict with God's laws, we are to honor them and honor its claims to authority in our lives. Not one of us has the right to say that the government has no authority over me. We don't have that, as Christians especially, don't have that right to say that. Regardless of whether or not we like the administration, Regardless of we, we, we agree with what the government's doing, regardless of whether the, the government spends our tax money the way that we think that, we, that, they, that they should, right? we have no right to refuse the government's authority in our lives. Jesus acknowledges Rome's rightful claim upon the Jews. Jesus is saying Caesar has the right to have authority over them. Now, here's the part I want you to hear, okay? This is the part that might be hard to hear. If Rome has authority over them, our government has authority over us. Because I'm going to promise you, you don't like the government today, you wouldn't have liked the Roman government then. Right? That's why people saying, not my present, doesn't make any sense. I mean, you can say that all you want to, but it doesn't change the fact. And I don't care if you agree or disagree or who you voted for. That doesn't matter. Whether or not we like our government, whether or not we agree with our government, whether or not we feel it represents us the right way, 
We're to submit to that authority if it doesn't conflict with God's authority, which, by the way, is what Paul and Peter talk about throughout the Scriptures. You want those Scripture references? I'll give them to you. Romans chapter 13 is one of them. It's clear in the New Testament that we're called to submit to the governing authorities. By the way, both of them wrote that at the same time that Nero Caesar was, 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 the, was the Roman emperor, and he hated Christians and was persecuting them. doesn't give us a lot of wiggle room there, right? We are to submit to Caesar's authority as long as it doesn't conflict with God's authority. Well, how do you then determine whose authority ends and begins where? How do we, we decide when there's a, a conflict in that authority? Well, Jesus, in this text, by implication, gives us the answer. But sometimes we just overlook the answer. Notice Jesus said to them, whose image is on the coin? And they said Caesar's. It has Caesar's image on it. It's Caesar's economic system. It belongs to him. But on what is God's image placed? What is, where is God's image placed? On mankind, on you, on me, on every living human being that has ever existed. Mankind is made in the image of God. Every single person who has ever walked the face of the earth has been stamped indelibly with the image of the living God. Every person, right? Every person has had built into them and upon them the likeness of God. Which means what? We belong to Him. Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and render to God what belongs to Him. We are His. Not just part of you, not just part of your life, but all of your life. We completely and totally belong to Him. We do not belong to the government. You understand that. We submit to the government because, because they are the authority that God has placed in our lives. But we don't belong to them. The government does not own us. God owns us. And that means our allegiance must then be to him above all other things. And that means his law is above all other laws. And that his claims are above all other claims. And so when Caesar says, you must worship me and say, Caesar is Lord, we must say, no, Caesar. Jesus is Lord. I will not worship you. And when Caesar says, you must teach your children that there is no God, we must say, no, Caesar, I cannot deny him. And I will not deny him. And when Caesar says, you must stop telling people the truth about the institution of the family and the institution of marriage, we must say, no, Caesar, I cannot deny the truth. Right? You can abuse me. You can arrest me, and you can kill me, but I cannot and will not deny the truth. And when Caesar says, you can't worship as the Bible prescribes worship, and, and you can't gather as God commands and ordains us for, to do, because your worship right, of God is not essential, we must say to Caesar, with all due respect, you don't have authority here. Because you don't. Arrest me if you like. Take all of my worldly possessions. Per prosecute me if you must. But I cannot and I will not submit to you in this area. Because I belong to God. I do not belong to you. I must do as he commands. No matter what you have to say.
You see, Jesus avoids a trap and he leaves for us a way to navigate the authority of civil government and the authority of God. But then how do we then take this and apply this to our lives? Well, the first thing I think that we have to settle is you need to know who you belong to. And the thing is, is we are, and we talk about that we are all, you know, radically depraved because it's our nature. But, but, but the thing we have to remember still is we belong to God made in his image. And that image is still there. Even on the worst possible person, that image is still there. We all belong to God. All of mankind belongs to God, whether we're a believer or whether we're an unbeliever. Everybody still belongs to him. They still are his creation. Right? And we were made by him and made for him and his glory. You want to know why you're alive today? For God's glory. Right? The sooner you embrace that, the sooner your life will begin to make more sense. Right? And, and the thing is, because he owns us then, because we were made for him and by him and he, we belong to him, then guess what? All of humanity will one day give an account to him for our lives. This is the urgent call, right? For those who know him, we, we celebrate that truth, right? Because we know what's going to happen. Right? The righteousness of Christ is upon us because our sins have been paid by Christ on the cross. But for those who aren't, they're going to give a full account. And that whole doctrine of sin and hell that nobody likes to talk about, that's going to be their reality forever. That's why we urgently call people to repent and believe the gospel. The most important thing that they can do is repent and believe the gospel. I don't care how you vote. I don't care what you think about, you know, we can argue about blue lives matter or black lives matter and all that other stuff. Right? We can argue about whether you should wear a mask or shouldn't wear a mask or whether you should yell at people for wearing a mask or yell at people for not wearing a mask. We can argue about that stuff all day long, but that's not even the important issue. The important issue is every single human being, every person that you know, your friends, your family, your loved ones will stand before God at one point and either they will stand there in joy or awful and terrible fear as the wrath of God's being poured on them. That is why sharing the gospel is so critically important. It's the most important issue that we have. By the way, if you're, if you're embracing that you're made in the image of God, then you need to be sharing with people that they are too. So know who you belong to. Secondly, you need to purposely bear that image. You bear it whether or not you realize it or not, but you need to bear it intentionally, which means we tell people the truth. Now, we do so in love, for sure, but we still got to tell people the truth. That's why we, we talk about grace and truth all the time. We need to bear that image, the full image of Christ, to the best of our abilities. By the way, which means we need to walk in grace. And I, I just got to say, like, I'm going to tell you, if I can just have a confession, I expect the world to act stupid and, and to be jerks. But I'm going to tell you something, nothing makes me ups, more upset to see people who are professing to be Christians be jerk faces to other people, especially over stupid things. So here's the thing. The whole mass thing, I don't care what you think about it. Everybody has their opinion. People say science, science, science. Pfft, I don't care because guess what? Nobody has settled the issue. Right? There's, nobody has, the, has a, the market cornered on wisdom or the information. All right? If you think it's important to wear a mask, then wear a mask. Right? To the glory of God. Right? But if that dude over there doesn't, then don't be a jerk face and go over there and then berate him because he's not wearing a mask. You're not, I mean, you know, you know what I mean? It's, it's like, it, 
Why? Right? By the same token, if you're somebody who says, I'm not wearing a mask, and you go to a business and say, you can't come in here because, unless you put a mask on, then either A, put a mask on or go somewhere else. There's no cause for us to make a stink and, and, and flex our, our religious liberties, you know, for, for all the world to see and see what kind of intolerant idiots we can be as Christians. We're not, do you realize that when you die to Christ that really you kind of technically give those rights up anyway? Right? I, mean, I mean, in essence, we do. The, I mean, the reality is, is you're not being persecuted for your faith if they ask you to wear a mask. Does that make sense? Right. And again, I know people have different opinions about this, but I don't care about opinions. I care about how we reflect the image of God. Are we being gracious? Are we in confrontation? Are we being the ones that are loving and caring and say, you know what? I get it. I'm just going to just go ahead and, and, and respect you as a person, and I'm, gonna, I'm either going to comply or I'm going to go somewhere else. Right? We need to bear the image of Christ intentionally, which means we're going to tell people the truth in love. Right? And by the way, your right to wear a mask or not wear a mask is not a biblical truth, so you can just take that one off. Again, I don't care how you feel about this. i got my own personal convictions about it, but it, that's not the issue. Third, Live for his glory. Right? You've been stamped indelibly with the image of God upon you. And every part of your life is a reflection of who he is. As a mom, as a dad, as a grandparent, as a person who works, as a teacher, as a borax worker, as a student, right? as a skateboarder, whatever your hobbies are, whatever you do, all of it still... Re- has the image of God imprinted upon it. You do all those things as an image bearer of God, understanding that everything that you do, whether you're sweeping the floor, whether you're witnessing to people, whether you are holding someone's hand as they're, as they're vomiting because of chemotherapy, whatever you are doing in your life, do it for his glory. Because that's what you were created for. And I promise you, you will know a deeper and greater intimacy with God if you will decide, I'm going to live for your glory in all things. I think that's what we can take away from this text. That we know who we belong to, that we bear his image the way that is fitting, and that we live for his glory. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world. 